All right. Good morning. We're talking about football in church this morning. If you're listening online about drop kicking things that don't work. So, <laughs> so we are in our fourth installment of our series, The Promises of God, Sweet Like Honey. And this morning we are talking about the uh, promise of God for forgiveness. And although we have been Christians for many time, for many years, most of us, the talk of, or the issue of forgiveness is always good to hear because it's always refreshing. It's always good and rejuvenating to hear that God forgives us again and again and again. So the reality is, as we get into this, is that there is no amount of sin in our lives that can separate us from the love of God we do what his word calls us to do, if we are willing to confess and repent, God is willing to forgive. He chooses to have our lives pure and in his holiness through the forgiveness of sins that he literally pays the debt of our sin through his own life, blood shed, that if we repent and confess and believe in Christ, we shall have that forgiveness in our life. Now we're in the final chapter of our series, which we've had four installments on the promises of God, and they come from Psalm 119, 103, just in case you're curious, which says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And the promises of God found in his word are so sweet to our lives because they should give us such peace and hope and comfort. As we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness changes our lives. Now I'm hoping that everyone hearing my voice and uh, seeing me live and in person has God's forgiveness, but if you haven't, it's very simple. You confess your sins to God, admit that you're a sinner, that you have sinned against Him and Him alone, and ask that He would come into your life as Lord and Savior and forgive you of your sins, that your life would be radically changed and transformed. And when our sins are forgiven through Christ and salvation, our lives and minds are radically changed and and uh, different than before. When I was eight or nine years old, my parents got divorced when I was eight. My mom had custody and she followed the road construction a lot, as many of you know, um, when we were kids and she would follow the road constructions in the mountains of Colorado. So we couldn't always go with her. So we would stay with one set of grandparents throughout the summers or during the school year sometimes and spent a lot of time with them. We happened to be in Delta, Colorado with uh, my grandparents on my dad's side one summer, my brother and I, and uh, we'd been there for the summer, been there a couple weeks, and it was a nice hot summer day, and I think I'd had some school thing, some summer school thing, that just had this science thing and a cooking thing, and I thought they were both so cool. And I decided as a young eight or nine year old that I would apply what I had learned in this summer class about science and cooking. So I went back and it just happened to be one of those days where my, for some reason, my grandma and grandpa must have been at the store because they weren't at home. And I started this great mindset of combining science and cooking in my grandmother's kitchen. My grandma and grandpa came back to a house filled with black smoke, gushing out, extremely stinky and going out of everywhere. Well, what I had done in my application of these two classes is I thought if I can cook something with science and make a potion, it would be awesome. So I took some of the food in the, the cabinet, I took some of the food out of the fridge, I went to the bathroom, I took my grandpa's cologne, his shaving cream, found a few cleaning chemicals under the seat, I combined them in this cast iron skillet, and I was cooking on the stove, just stoked to see what I was gonna find, and then reality hit. 
All it did was have this horrendous black burning smoke that just brought tears to your eyes. And that's what my grandma and grandpa walked back into. Now my grandpa was a short man and he had a short fuse because he was a short man and he was furious. I mean, just livid walking in this house and smoke is billowing out thinking the house is on fire, his eyes watering. My grandma was upset too, but my grandmother was one of those people that I call a bridge builder. And she very tactfully got in between my grandfather and me and she calmed him down. We put the fire out, put the stuff outside. And then she sat me down and had a talking to me about why we don't make potions and why we don't do that, especially when grandma and grandpa aren't home. And then she did something I'll never forget. Instead of getting me the whooping that I deserved, she said, honey, I forgive you. I can still hear those words. And what makes it even more impacting is as an adult, I look back now and my grandparents were not on the well-to-do side. They weren't even in the middle class. They were just barely making ends meet. And not only had I ruined their one cast iron pan, I used up all my grandpa's cologne and shaving cream. So he had to go to the store and buy more off the few little bits of money that they had. Today, we're talking about forgiveness. It's part of God's character to forgive. And we're invited to receive his forgiveness as he wants to forgive us. Forgive us. His desire is to restore us in that rightful relationship with him. And as I'm talking, can you think of times over your life in the past that you have done something wrong? And hopefully there has been someone there, a bridge builder, that when you've done something wrong, instead of giving you the consequence which you deserved, they gave you love and forgave you. And it sticks in your mind. Most often we think of the times that we've done something horrible and didn't receive forgiveness. But that's not what we're talking about today. Romans 3 verses 23 to 24 tell us this. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That means everyone, all of us have sinned. None of us can look down on another for having less sin than we do because one sin is as bad as a thousand sins, right? In God's equation, sin is sin and it separates us from God. And his desire is to alleviate that. But if we've had one sin or a thousand, or if you're up to my track, work, track record, about 10 billion, what does he have to do to keep us in that right relationship with him? He has to pay the price of all the sin, right? And as the Bible says, the penalty of sin is death. That means somewhere there has to be death. And Jesus chose to go on the cross to be crucified, an innocent man in the place of uninnocent men and women to cover our sins for those that would seek him that like John 10, 10 shares might have abundant life, a life of freedom, knowing that our sin is forgiven. So what does forgiveness actually look like? Turn with me if you've got your Bibles or the Bible on your cell phone to John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. As we tackle the issue of the process, the power, and the promise of God's forgiveness in our lives. 1 John 1, 9 tells us this. If we what? Confess. Confess what? Our 
our sins, he is faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. You see, when God forgives us, he forgives completely. So we want to look at three parts of forgiveness this morning that impact us. And number one, if you're taking notes, is this. First must come the confession of sins, of taking God at his word, that God says, if you want my forgiveness, this is what you must do. Confess and repent of your sins. What that means is this, and it's painful. We have to own our sins. Now, how many of you like that? I just want to own my sins and take accountability for all the mistakes I've done, not necessarily against everybody else, but against God, because that's ultimately who we sin against, isn't it? If we harm another person, well, yes, we do harm them and commit a sin against them, but ultimately, as they are God's creation, who do we sin against? We sin against God and his creation. Now, here's where some people get hung up. Some people think that confession is getting caught. Confession is getting caught. It's this mindset that says this, well, if I get caught in my sin, well, now it's out in the open, everybody knows about it, so that's kind of like confession, so I don't have to do anything, right? Have you heard people talk about it like that? Well, everybody knows about it now, so it's on the open, it's done. That is not confession, isn't it? Confession is admitting our sin before God or those that we have wounded, that we have harmed them, that we take accountability for our sins and what we have done against them, especially to God. Seeking God and saying, Lord, I wounded you as I wounded this person, and I own that sin. That was my choice, my responsibility, and Lord, I deserve the full consequence for that sin, which as we know, the consequence of sin is what? Death. Death. But as we confess that, we also ask that Christ would intercede for us and forgive us. Romans 8 verse 34 has encouraging words for those who have been in sin and need that sin forgiven and alleviated to live a life of freedom and joy. Romans 8, 34 says this, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That as Christ was crucified again, an innocent man on the cross, the sinless for the sinful, taking his life for the payment of all the world's sins, as we confess, he intercedes for us. Now that's a nice thing. I remember when, it uh, wasn't a bad thing, but when we were first took ownership of the building, we were trying to get incorporated and have it done in a tax-exempt way, and God blessed us with a gentleman that interceded for us to write our bylaws and to bring everything together. He interceded for us on the legal side to make sure that everything we did after a period of about six weeks matched up with the law so that we were in line with things. And I don't know about you, but I thought, well, this process shouldn't be so hard as the pastor to do this. And as he as a legal person got into going through our incorporation as a nonprofit organization, 
I was so thankful to God that he, we had an intercessor for us to speak the legal language, to make sure everything was covered, written out correctly, and things were done so that we were completely legal in the eyes of our nation. Now, typically on the side of a bad thing, an intercessor is important to step in between us and the judge and say, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to intercede for them. And the picture is literally this. I want not just to intercede for them to keep them from harm, but in Christ's case, he steps in and says, I want to literally take their place. As they confess to me, I will intercede and take their place to receive the punishment that they deserve upon myself. And that is why we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, these amazing words. Hebrews states this, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in he to help in time of need. Now, I don't know how many times you've read that verse, but that's an amazing verse. Because if we are sinful people, do you want to draw near the throne of God? I don't want to be anywhere near there. Where do we want to be? As far away from that as we can be because we know that God is the judge of our lives. And if we are a sinful people, like the Word of God says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a horrible place to be. But because Christ intercedes for us when we confess and we repent, we read those words again in Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why do we go to the throne of grace with confidence? Because it says that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of help and need. Well, how many of you guys have time of help and need? About every hour of the day, right? And we have that so we can go forth confidently to God, to the throne of grace, to receive that forgiveness when we have sinned. Number two, we need to receive forgiveness. Now, that sounds kind of ridiculous as we spend all this time talking about confessing and repenting and owning our sin that God intercedes for us. But receiving forgiveness is often difficult for many people. Again, we go back to our base verse of 1 John 1, 9. says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we mentally know that when we do that, God forgives us, right? If we're sincere in our heart, have an integrity in our heart to seek God and truly confess, we know that God forgives us, but do we truly accept that? Now, Christy and I, you guys know, have been married for some little over three decades, which she has loved every single decade and every moment of those decades. Some she has loved so much, she's wanted to have a bazooka at times, and so have I, but... God is gracious, right? <laughs> I remember a number of years ago, as we, well, actually about 20 years ago, as we were struggling through this marriage issue and learning to become one, that we had one of those things that we re referred to as a marital discussion. Now, you really know what that is, don't you? It's a fight, right? That's a knockdown, drag out, I don't agree with you fight. And I still remember that as we were fighting, I came to that point of, not having this spiritual 
characteristic of this thing in the Bible called self-control. You know what that is, right? And you're in that heated moment. You're angry. You're upset. You're not agreeing. You're kind of opposing each other. And in that lack of self-control, I remember saying many things that out of anger that I really never would have said before. And luckily, I remember she forgave me after it was all done and we settled down and we made up. But here's the thing. She forgave me. But you know what kept ringing through my mind? Those words and the wounds that I had done. It's like I knew that she forgave me, but accepting that forgiveness and having that freedom was difficult. Because I kept thinking and reliving day after day after day the words that I had said, how mean they were, how bad they were. I had said them in anger and how much I know they wounded her. Anybody relate to that? You know you have been forgiven, but it's like the movie Groundhog Day. It just keeps repeating again and again and again and again in your mind. Sometimes we're like that with God. We cry out to God. We confess our sins. We know he forgives us. And then we find ourselves over the next 56 days coming back to God, asking him to what? Forgive us for that exact same sin. In John chapter 8, we read a powerful story of a woman who was caught in adultery. We know this story was a setup because she was brought out and thrown at the feet of Jesus out in the city street with the religious leader saying she was caught in adultery. But guess who wasn't there? The other half of the party. So this was a complete setup to see what they could do with Jesus. And as the religious leaders are claiming their legal right to stone her to death for her actions, Jesus simply makes a statement and then decides to have a playful moment and draw in the sand. Not quite what the religious leaders expected, I don't think. But he tells the religious leaders basically this. Any one of you who has never sinned, and some theologians believed, he literally made the statement, any one of you that has not committed the same sin, cast the first stone. And the Bible tells us very clearly, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, these condemning religious leaders did what? Walked away and left, and disappeared into the crowd with no further action. In John chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, it states this about the relationship at that moment with Jesus and the woman. It says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more you see what jesus does here in this amazing passage is i'm thinking in my mindset that she must have been crying out to god at that moment in front of her accusers for forgiveness knowing that her public shame was out in front of everybody and she literally probably stood to die right everything's out in the open and now she's going to be stoned to death and i'm guessing in her heart as jesus is there she's crying out for forgiveness of what she's done because Jesus obviously heard that prayer. And like the religious leaders that walked away one by one, 
Jesus did not what? He didn't condemn her. He let her go. No consequence, no punishment, because I believe she had sought that forgiveness. But he does do this. As she leaves and is forgiven, he gives her a commission. Do you know what a commission is? A commission is a call to go and do something. So instead of condemning her, which was the letter of law, he sends her on a mission. And you know what her mission is? From now on, go and sin no more. Isn't that a beautiful story? That's what God does to us. When we come and we confess and he forgives us, as we cry out in our heart to God, he says, my forgiveness is on you, a child. No one is here to condemn you or judge you at this moment. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt is paid in full. But then he sends us on a commission. And what is that commission? Now go and don't do it again. Go and sin no more. In other words, you are free. It's like, I've let you out of the jail cell. Now don't of your own volition and will walk back in and lock yourself up. That's the message. And that's what we have to understand because so many people, so many Christians get that confused that they think they keep half asking God for forgiveness. And we don't. Because once he forgives us, it is done. And the imagery is literally, if we continue to hold on to that sin, it's just like us being freed from that cell and walking back into that jail and closing the door and saying, it's not good enough. I deserve to be in jail. When Christ has set us free, we need to let Christ set us free as we are washed in the blood of Christ and cleansed by him, for he is the savior of all mankind. Number three, as we're cleansed from our righteousness, it is final. In high school, I had this great chemistry teacher that we loved. He, uh, I think he was an old elf. He was like five foot nothing. He, he had a lot of weathered skin on his life and he kind of walked around kind of like a little meat mad scientist all the time. Big glasses, black thick glasses. He would do crazy things like pay us in the summer to go out and, and gather these tarantulas that would migrate. He'd give us a buck a piece for the tarantulas and sell them to the university. But in his class, he always made chemistry fun. And I remember one time he was sitting there and he had this huge uh, triangular beaker of liquid. And he poured a couple chemicals in and he picked the beaker up and he began to shake it and shake it and the whole thing turned a dark, dark blue in this chemical reaction. And then he says, I want to talk to you about a thing called a catalyst. You know what a catalyst is? A catalyst is something that comes in that changes what is there, but doesn't change itself. And as he was talking about this catalyst, he had this dark blue beaker he was swishing around and he reached over and he took another small vial and he poured it into that beaker and slowly we began to see the blue began to fade until that beaker was once again completely 100% clear. He says, now that's what a catalyst does. A catalyst comes in and takes something that's one thing and changes that, but the catalyst doesn't change. Isn't Christ our greatest catalyst? He comes into us when we're in a life of sin and we're stained and dark and we're blotted. 
And he comes in and he does not change, but when he enters our life and is stirred into the, the compound, the liquid, the flu, the flow of our life, we suddenly begin to take on purity once again. And he stays there until all the stain is what? Gone. And we are completely pure once again. That's what forgiveness is. In Isaiah chapter 1, if you want to turn there. It tells us this. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. When we receive God's forgiveness, we are transformed. It's the sacrificial offering, what the, the Jewish people did on a, on a daily basis to sacrifice for their sins because the consequence of sins was death and a life had to be sacrificed to temporarily cover those sins. Jesus was the ultimate final lamb sacrifice that not just covered our sins temporarily, but completely. And as that catalyst came into our lives, transformed us to be sinless once again. 1 Peter 1.16 gives us this great message of what we are to do once we have been forgiven by God of our sins in confession to him and forgiving ourselves and accepting his forgiveness. We read this in 1 Peter 1.16. It says, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And we all know that to be holy means to be what? To set apart, to be placed in a place of honor, be taken out of the muck, the mire, the sludge, be cleansed and placed in a place of honor. And Jesus says, once you receive my forgiveness, as you are cleansed from our unrighteousness, you are to be holy as I am holy. And it's even more impacting when we realize that through salvation in Jesus, God through the Holy Spirit not only is there with us, but he what? He indwells within us. God himself indwells within our lives. So as God is holy, we are called to live as holy. Again, we hear this call from 1 John 1, 9. If, conditional statement, it's up to you and I. If we confess our, it's a personal thing, our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and one step further to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Going back to Isaiah 43, one last verse. Once we are restored to Christ, that forgiveness is complete. There's nothing we add to it or take from it. As Christ said, it is finished, and we are forgiven past, present, and future, and seek to live that holy life, not to earn God's forgiveness and his favor, but because we have received God's love and favor. Isaiah 43, 25 says this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions or sins for my own sake, and remembers your sin, here's the kicker, remembers your sin what? No more. 
Isn't it interesting that God himself says he wipes out our sin for whose sake? His sake. Well, I thought it was for me. I thought I was getting the bonus round on this and being forgiven. He forgives us for his sake. Do you know why? So he can be rightfully in that loving relationship with us once again, like Adam and Eve before they sinned, to walk with us, to talk with us, to draw us near into his presence, to put us in that rightful place in which he created us for in his purpose and his will. It's God's desire to forgive us if we'll just confess and accept. He says, it's really for me. He goes, you get the bonus of forgiveness, but I already paid the price. What do I get now? I get to be with you because that's God's desire. Because holiness cannot dwell with unholiness, can it? Light cannot dwell with darkness. And Jesus says his desire is to be in relationship with us. Therefore, his desire is to confess or is to forgive us if we will only confess and believe and accept. And then the beauty, he says, he remembers our sin, how? No more. We are so good at keeping lists of other people's sins and bringing them up at those just totally imperfect moments, aren't we? And God says, throw that list away. Because I do. He says, when I forgive you, I remember your sin no more, and therefore neither should you. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, go on a commission, a mission to be holy as I am holy, and go and sin no more. Well, we've heard this message all our lives as Christians, but hopefully it's good to hear it again, right? To be reminded that those things that we hold in our mind and the, the cobwebs on our mind that need to be cleaned out are forgiven. To be reminded those things that bring us guilt and shame and anxiety are forgiven. To remind us that down the road, God won't bring something up 27 years later and say, oh, you remember back then? He says, I remember it no more. If you have sought God and confessed your sin before him, now we need to accept that on God's terms, that he has forgiven that and remembers it no more and calls us now to be in relationship with him, holy with holy, and to go and sin no more. Isn't that good news? Isn't the promise of God's forgiveness great and sweeter than honey to hear again and again and again? To me, it's such a good reminder of how holy and how amazing God is that I fail on a regular basis and yet God has covered that again and again and again so that we can walk in relationship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Savior Jesus and Holy Spirit, we thank you once again for the reminding of your word that as we seek you and we confess and we repent and we own our sins and we come before you and beg and ask and desire your forgiveness that you hear our prayers that you answer our prayers with your own life your own shed blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness to blot out our sins to make us white as snow and white as wool and to remember our sins no more and now to make us holy 
that we can walk with you and talk with you and commune with you throughout each day for the rest of our lives until we stand before you and share that cup of communion with you once again in your kingdom. Thank you for your greatness and your blessing and your love and your forgiveness upon us and especially your salvation. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name.